The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of Part 2, the second half of Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. Though I try to make them shorter, I'm discovering that my summaries for each reading in this novel end up being about 1,800 words long. Let me briefly explain my goals for the summaries and the challenges of condensation. I know many people struggle with focus when reading classic literature, so it's easy to let details of the story pass you by. These summaries are meant to help ensure that you don't miss anything by allowing you to essentially reread the chapter without actually rereading. By summarizing the chapter, I'm inescapably delivering it to you in a more prosaic form. But unlike Spark Notes or Cliff's Notes, I try not to deprive it entirely of its soul. My goal is to preserve something of the spirit of the novel in the summaries, which means I can't simply reduce them to the bare bones of the plot. The Sparknotes summary of Raskolnikov's dream, for example, that haunting, gruesome nightmare, the description of which makes you feel like you yourself are descending with Raskolnikov into madness, is only this, quote, he falls into a deep sleep during which he dreams that the police detective is beating his landlady. He is sure it is reality and not a dream. Nastasia wakes him and brings him food the next day. She tells him that he has imagined the scene between the landlady and the detective. Unquote. That is inadequate. This novel in particular is especially hard to summarize, first because of its psychological depth, which is done justice only by reading carefully every word, and second because it plays out like an unraveling mystery and it's difficult for me to judge in advance which details are the most important to include. In any case, I hope the summaries are helpful. It is certainly helpful to me to write them. In the comments section of this post in the Facebook group, I'll share an example of a section I almost entirely misread the first time around. So, here is our focus summary for this reading. Learning that he has been summoned to the police station because his landlady is demanding payment on an IOU, Raskolnikov feels at once indignant and triumphantly relieved. He experiences an instant of pure joy, having been delivered from overwhelming danger. At that moment, the assistant superintendent, Ilya Petrovich, still fuming over Raskolnikov's disrespect, pounces upon a lady in the office, Louisa Ivanovna, calling her a shameful hussy for fighting and drinking on the street. Raskolnikov watches the abuse in amusement as the woman trembles, curtsies, and lavishes the officer with amiable smiles. She makes her excuses and paints herself as blameless, saying it was all the fault of Karl, an ungentlemanly visitor. Petrovich threatens her with prison if there is scandal in her honorable house again, and attributes the ungentlemanly conduct to the fact of the visitor having been an author, citing other examples of scandals surrounding literary men. Louisa Ivanovna curtsies herself to the door, where she runs into the incoming superintendent, Nikodim Famich. Famich comments jovially that Ilya Petrovich is again producing thunder and lightning, 
in response to which the assistant superintendent complains of how he was disrespected by a caddish student who doesn't pay his debts. Vomich turns to Raskolnikov to offer him assurance that, though Petrovich is explosive and probably went too far, he is a capital fellow with a heart of gold. Raskolnikov, struck by a desire to say something exceptionally pleasant, asks pardon for being ill-mannered, and pleads with them to see the injustice of the I.O.U. He is a poor student, shattered by poverty. He was once engaged to the landlady's daughter, during which time she gave him free credit. After the young woman died, the landlady insisted on an I.O.U., promising not to collect until he could pay. And yet here she is demanding payment when he has no lessons and nothing to eat. Ilya Petrovich says these personal details are no business of theirs, but Nikodim Famich calls him too harsh. The clerk then tells Raskolnikov gruffly to write what he dictates, and Raskolnikov is suddenly overcome with complete revulsion. Not because of the clerk's or Petrovich's condescension, nor because of the shame of his sentimental effusions, but because he feels with a peculiar intensity that he no longer has any right to appeal to them or anyone else in any circumstance of life. It is one of the strangest and most agonizing sensations he has ever felt. The head clerk dictates to Raskolnikov the usual declaration, that he cannot pay and will try to do so at a future date, observing that he can hardly hold a pen. Raskolnikov feels as if there were a nail driving into his skull, and he is overcome again by a powerful impulse to confess. At that moment, he hears Ilya Petrovich and Nikodim Famich discussing Koch and Pistrikov, the student, the customers who are outside Alyona Ivanovna's flat after the murder. Famich is saying that they could not have been guilty of the crime and will be released. They conclude that the murderer must have been inside the flat when the two men knocked at the door. Raskolnikov picks up his hat, moves toward the door, and faints. When he recovers consciousness, they begin questioning him about how long he has been ill and whether he had been out the day before. They seem suspicious of his answers, given sharply and jerkily while he stares at them with feverish eyes. They release him, and he goes out, catching the sound of eager conversation behind him as he departs. He hurries home in terror, certain that they suspect and that there will be a search at once. Arriving at his home, Raskolnikov finds it untouched, even by Nastasia. He rushes to the corner, pulls the hidden objects from the hole behind the paper, examines them, and stuffs them into his pockets. Then he goes out, leaving the door open behind him, fearing pursuit and considering how best to hide the evidence of his crime. He realizes he had already decided the night before to fling the objects in the canal and get rid of them. The crowds swarming the canal's banks make this plan prove difficult. He considers going instead to the Neva, and then still farther to the islands, where there are not so many people but on his way he discovers a passage to a solitary and deserted courtyard littered with rubbish. He slips in,
finds a big heavy stone against the outside wall, moves it aside, and deposits the contents of his pockets in the hole beneath it, afterwards seizing the stone and twisting it back into its original position. Going out into the square, he again experiences a fleeting moment of unbearable joy, believing himself to have covered his tracks. He laughs, but as other ideas creep into his mind, his laughter becomes thin and then stops. He recalls his encounter with the girl and the policeman, and the thought of passing the seat where he found her, or of crossing paths with the policeman, fills him with loathing. All his ideas begin circling around a central point, as he feels they have been continually for two months. He scorns the new life that has begun, with him telling lies and fawning over policemen. But the question that bitterly confounds him is, if the goal of all this filthy, degrading business was the purse, why did he not even glance at its contents? And why did he want at once to throw it into the river? He decides it is because he is ill and worrying unnecessarily, and he reassures himself that he will get well and leave off fretting. But as he walks along, he becomes increasingly mastered by a feeling of overwhelming repulsion, and all who meet him are so loathsome to him, he feels that if one of them addressed him, he would spit at them or bite them. Then he finds himself, not knowing if it was by chance or on purpose, outside the house of Razumihin, just as he had planned two days before. He finds his friend at home, unkempt and in a ragged dressing gown. Razumihin invites him to sit down, observing that he seems ill, even delirious. Raskolnikov realizes how unprepared he was to face another human being, and he abruptly says goodbye and walks toward the door. Razumihin stops him, calling his departure insulting and asking if he is mad. Raskolnikov merely responds that he wants nothing, no services, no sympathy, and that he is alone. Razumihin tells him of the job he has translating works for a bookseller. The books are bad, but he is paid well and in advance. He invites Raskolnikov, who was always a better speller with greater knowledge of German, to share the work and the money. Raskolnikov takes the money and the papers and silently walks out, then turns back, lays them on the table, and goes out again. Razumihin shouts after him that he is crazy and demands to know why the devil he came to see him in the first place, but he is given no answer. Raskolnikov walks mindlessly into the middle of the street in traffic, and is called to consciousness only by a passing coachman who lashes him with a whip for getting under his carriage's wheels. An elderly woman walking by with her daughter, taking him for a beggar and feeling sorry for him, thrusts twenty kopecks into his hand. He walks on and turns to face the Neva with the cupola of the cathedral glittering in the distance beyond. As a student, he had many times stood in this spot, gazing at this magnificent spectacle and marveling at the strange emotion it roused in him. He had always felt perplexed and self-doubtful about the fact that the sight left him cold, and the memory wrings his heart. 
All those thoughts and memories now seem deep down and hidden from him, and he suddenly feels as if he were flying upward, with everything vanishing from sight. Becoming aware of the money in his hand, he flings it into the water, feeling as if in that moment he has cut himself off from everything and everyone. He arrives home six hours later, not knowing how and where he had come back. He lies down on the sofa, draws his coat over him, and sinks into oblivion. He is waked up by a scream and sits up in terror. Outside, he hears the landlady shrieking, beseeching someone not to beat her. He hears the spiteful, raging voice of her assailant and recognizes it as that of Ilya Petrovich, the assistant superintendent. He hears him kicking her, bashing her head against the steps, while crowds of people run through the stairs, exclaiming, knocking, and banging doors. He wants to latch the door, but he cannot lift his hand, and terror grips his heart like ice. Slowly, the uproar begins to subside, and he hears the crowd and the landlady and Ilya Petrovich all go away. He lies on his sofa in anguish for half an hour, until suddenly Nastasia comes in with a candle and a plate of soup. He asks her why Ilya Petrovich had been there and why he beat the landlady, and she scrutinizes him intently, silent and frowning. Finally, she says softly, It's the blood. And after a moment, she says resolutely, No one has been beating the landlady. He gazes at her, unable to breathe, and then says timidly that he heard it himself. Believing he is delirious with illness, she says that his fancies are a consequence of the blood crying in his ears. He asks her for something to drink, and then falls again into forgetfulness. The next of my posts was called The Entirely New and Utterly Unexpected. It is unclear how Raskolnikov expected he would feel after the crime, but it is clear that he is continually and utterly surprised by how he does. Time and time again, he feels sensations, has impulses, and confronts questions entirely new and utterly unexpected. It seems important to consider closely all these experiences that take him by surprise, and to examine what they suggest. First, there is Raskolnikov's experience of, quote, the most agonizing of all the sensations he had known in his life, unquote, after he makes his sentimental effusions to the officers. When he thinks to himself that, quote, if the whole room had been filled, not with police officers, but with those nearest and dearest to him, he would not have found one human word for them, so empty was his heart, unquote when, quote, a gloomy sensation of agonizing, everlasting solitude and remoteness took conscious form in his soul, unquote. When he realizes that, quote, if he had been sentenced to be burnt at that moment, he would not have stirred, would hardly have heard the sentence to the end, unquote. And when he experiences the entirely new and intense sensation that even if they, quote, had been his own brothers and sisters, and not police officers, 
it would have been utterly out of the question to appeal to them in any circumstance of life, unquote. Then there is the strange impulse that suddenly takes hold of him, to get up, to go at once to Nicodem Famich and confess. Quote, the impulse was so strong that he got up from his seat to carry it out. Hadn't I better think a minute flash through his mind? No, better cast off the burden without thinking. Unquote. There is the moment that his elated laughter at having covered his tracks abruptly stops, as he unexpectedly recalls his encounter with the girl on Kay Boulevard, and feels repulsed by the thought of passing the seat where he had found her, or of crossing paths with the policeman he had given money. And there are the thoughts that consume him afterward. Quote, he walked, looking about him angrily and distractedly. All his ideas now seemed to be circling round some single point, and he felt that there really was such a point, and that now, now, he was left facing that point, and for the first time, indeed, during the last two months. Unquote. There was the sudden, unexpected, and confounding question of why, if he committed the crime with the aim of stealing the old woman's money, he never even looked inside the purse and why he had resolved to throw it all away even at the moment he was bending over the box and pulling out its contents. There was, too, the new overwhelming sensation, gaining more mastery over him at every moment, quote, an immeasurable, almost physical repulsion for everything surrounding him, an obstinate, malignant feeling of hatred. All who met him were loathsome to him, he loathed their faces, their movements, their gestures. Unquote. There was his visit to Razumihin, which he had planned days before, carried out unconsciously, and then regretted the very moment he came face to face with his friend, prompting him to leave without even a word of explanation. There's the moment he stands on the bridge over the Neva, gazing at the glittering cathedral and recalling the hundreds of times he had stood and looked upon that magnificent sight with emptiness in his soul. Quote, it struck him as strange and grotesque that he should have stopped at the same spot as before, as though he actually imagined he could think the same thoughts, be interested in the same theories and pictures that had interested him so short a time ago. He felt it almost amusing, and yet it wrung his heart. Unquote. And there is the impulse he indulges afterward to fling the money given to him by the old woman in the water, feeling in that moment that, quote, he had cut himself off from everyone and everything, unquote. Why is he overtaken by a feeling of everlasting remoteness after he appeals to the sympathy of the officers? Why is he continually overwhelmed by a desire to confess? Why does recalling his encounter with the girl and the policeman fill him with loathing? What is the single point around which all his ideas have been circling? Why does he want nothing to do with the spoils of his crime? Why does he find himself mastered by a malignant feeling of hatred? Why does he go to Razumihin, and why does he abruptly depart? What is the meaning of his memory of those moments he stood gazing upon the cathedral with emptiness in his soul? 
I wish I could provide you with clear and final answers. I wish I knew whether, at this point, that's something I should even be able to do. But I hope there is at least a benefit to formulating the questions. And if you have answers of your own, I do hope you'll share them. Meanwhile, I can at least say for now that these new, sudden, and unexpected experiences seem to have a few common denominators. The crime has proved to be a burden on his soul, such that it feels like it would be a relief to confess, and even to die. He seems to suffer a deep and unbridgeable alienation from mankind. He feels he no longer has the right to ask or accept services or sympathy from anyone, neither strangers, friends, nor even family. And for every man he passes, he experiences an intense and malignant feeling of hatred. The crime seems to stand as a pivotal turning point that renders meaningless all that came before, making it grotesque to even consider the thoughts and pictures of his earlier life. Since we've only just begun, we will certainly learn much more, as we uncover clues to this murder mystery in which the central question seems to be, rather than who committed the crime, why he committed it, and with what personal and psychological consequences. The next of my posts was called Ilya Petrovich. In my last commentary, I quoted Lafcadio Hearn as saying all the characters in Crime and Punishment, not just Raskolnikov, live with a violence of realism. I've found myself continually struck by how handily Dostoevsky gives even his minor characters life and identity, by how well and how quickly I seem to know their souls. Take Ilya Petrovich. We know him almost the moment he steps on the scene. Jauntily, with a peculiar swing of his shoulders at each step, tossing his cockaded cap on the table and sitting down in an easy chair. He does not walk into this office. He struts. Here he is someone important, and he seems to want people to know it. He is described as possessing small features that express nothing much at all, other than insolence. And it is with insolence that he looks at Raskolnikov, who has the gall to fix a very long and direct look on him. He is astonished that, in one of my favorite lines in the novel thus far, quote, such a ragged fellow was not annihilated by the majesty of his glance, unquote. Aggrieved by Raskolnikov's insolence, he then has to more loudly assert his dominance. He finds an excuse to reprimand him, and pray, what time were you directed to appear, sir? And then, when Raskolnikov dares to argue back, shouts at him not to shout, and impudently rebukes him for his impudence. Shaken by Raskolnikov's disrespect, he looks around the room for someone else on whom he can take out his fury and avenge his wounded dignity. He settles on the smart lady and pounces, shouting at her out of the blue and at the top of his voice, "'You shameful hussy!' Her fawning, curtsying, trembling deference is the response to which he's probably accustomed. The more violent his abuse, the more amiable her smiles. He savors the moment, threatening her and lecturing her, including in his lecture a diatribe about the scandalous behavior of authors, literary men, and students, 
as he casts a contemptuous look in Raskolnikov's direction. According to Nikodim Famich, who mocks him jovially for all his thunder and lightning, though Ilya Petrovich goes off like gunpowder and can't bear a slight, he is harmless, a capital fellow with a heart of gold. On the scale of vices we've seen so far, his bullying and blustering really don't seem so bad. The last of my posts was called Unmapped Country. Last week I discovered a review of Crime and Punishment in an old publication called The Book News Monthly. Reviewer Bernice C. Skidelsky said of the novel, quote, Its strength lies in the wonderful psychological analysis of the criminal's mind before, during, and after the perpetration of the crime. Dostoevsky goes down deep into the mind of his character, ferreting out the most hidden recesses of the spirit, showing motives and processes of reasoning and the instantaneous power of blind impulses. She quotes George Eliot as saying, that there is a great deal of unmapped country within us, which would have to be taken into account in an explanation of our gusts and storms. And she says, quote, It is with this unmapped country that Dostoevsky earnestly concerns himself. He is a supreme student of the moment-to-moment shift in the human mental content, unquote. I've been realizing that I am accustomed to novels that are distinctly linear, that lead readers on a straight, well-marked, and purposeful path. With this novel so far, I feel as if I have been taken on a path that is unfamiliar, dark, and tangled, and that rather than walking straight through, I'm being asked to stop and look carefully around, to follow my guide as he ferrets out the most hidden recesses. I mention that because I'm feeling that in reading this novel, I have to cast off some expectations and become a different sort of reader. Because for me, this is unmapped literary country. I can promise I will do my best. <laughs>